You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Hey, friends, good to see y'all. Good morning. Um, It looks like we still need as many of y'all to scoot into the middle uh, as you can, as we can. We have folks that are still coming in. So uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday. I should have said to you... um, I decided I'm going to put my cards on the table. Um, I am uh, very much rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs uh, because a couple reasons, and I think this will make sense. As a lifelong Cowboys fan, I was discipled to not like the 49ers, um, even though if that's your team, I'm glad you are here uh, because we have great unity in Christianity. And also um, because uh, if you know a little bit about Dallas's history, Uh, The Kansas City Chiefs were once the Dallas Texans, and about 60 years ago, Lamar Hunt brought them to Kansas City, Uh, and it's been slim pickings for us uh, with our sports uh, wins here, and so I'm just going to latch on to anything that I can at this point, Uh, and so I'm going to root for the Dallas Texans, uh, also known as the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, to win the Super Bowl tonight. So I also want to say thank you for your prayers for our elder retreat we got away at Possum Kingdom this past weekend, this weekend, and it was, uh, it was just glorious. It was a great time, processed through a lot, uh, specifically as it relates to our, our future together in this building. Uh, and I want to invite you tomorrow night to worship in prayer. Um, so we're going to spend the first part of that time praying, worshiping, and then the second uh, part of that time with a Northway update meeting and give some really key updates uh, for our future that we feel like you guys uh, need to know about. So Um, I am tasked uh, to preach on the value of worship, which is one of our discipleship values as Northway. Um, As you know, Brady kicked us off talking about scripture. Uh, Shay spoke last week on what it means to be spirit-led. And then I get to talk about the the value of worship, uh, which we mean to say that as members of this church, we rejoice and we exalt in the triune God. And um, I, 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 the last thing in the world I want this to sound like is cliche, um, but I have been uh, really grappling with this message all week and uh, really my uh, humanity and my finiteness in talking about something as vast and as broad as Christian worship and how do I even communicate this in a sermon. And so uh, anyway, I've just been really humbled. And so I'm, gonna, um, I'm just going to do my best knowing that this is just a meager attempt of what it actually is to talk about and to think about and to consider worshiping God. And so we're going to be uh, out of Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the passage that we already read this morning. I'm going to read it again, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Maybe it's a passage that you know. And it says, uh, it says this, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, I guess I have three points for us as I think about that. Three points are this. One, uh, you are a worshiper, that worship is inescapable. Two, you are not a neutral worshiper. Um, You actually worship something. We worship something. And then three, that I think this is Paul telling us what worship towards the good life looks like. So let's start with the first point, worship as inescapable. 
I don't know how this happened, uh, but uh, we have delineated uh, clear lines between secular and sacred. Uh, And so if you want a worshipful religious experience, I think the idea now is maybe you go to some old monastery, maybe you go to some cathedral, maybe you go to India, uh, to some temple to find yourself, uh, but that that's kind of what worship and religion is and everything else isn't that. I think that's actually too, too limited, too narrow. Um, and I think the reason I, I say that is part of just the word itself, worship, actually comes from the old English where you have two different ideas, the worth-ship of something, what something is ultimately worth to a person. And so what happened over time is that word worth-ship just became uh, worship. Uh, and I would just pause it, and I don't, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time Um, thinking about this, that I think we all know this, believe this intuitively, uh, that we're all ultimately worshipers of something because it's pretty obvious what we believe is ultimately worthy about our lives, right? So there are times um, that we, um, and and maybe, maybe I'll say it this way, that if you spend a little bit of time with people, you typically can figure out what is ultimate to them, right? So there are those of us in seasons where we love, we cherish, we disciple our children, and then there are those of us in seasons where we are obsessed with our children, and that love has become inordinate. There are seasons where we work hard to provide, and there's, there are seasons where we do uh, hardly anything but work, and that becomes an identity for us. And Jesus speaks to this, Matthew six eleven. He says, for where your treasure is, your, uh, there your heart will also be. And the idea of heart is co-opted in the 21st century to mean kind of your emotions. And that's not what the word heart means in the scriptures. It means motivations. The heart, the idea of the heart in the scripture is what you ultimately want more than anything else. And Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Uh, the philosopher Jamie Smith has written a, a number of wonderful books, said this, He says, you are what you love because you live towards what you want. I think this is the idea that Paul is getting here, that we're ultimately a living sacrifice towards something. And there's priestly language in verse 1. So he says, um, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's priestly language. And it's interesting because there's no ongoing uh, sacrifice being made in Christianity anymore. But I think the idea of sacrifice is so central to uh, ancient religion. And I believe so, so central to even our understanding of worship today that it still holds a lot of water to communicate worship in this way as sacrificial. This is priestly language. Um, but he also says it's, he says it's your spiritual worship. And that word spiritual is actually only used twice in the New Testament. It's a really hard, a really challenging word to pin down. You could say uh, that it is your spiritual worship, your true worship, your rational worship. So Paul's saying worshiping this way is actually the true rational way to be a living sacrifice. What's interesting about that is he's not saying that this is the path towards worship and then everything else is not worshipful. Rather, he's saying in all of our opportunities to worship, this is actually the right way, the true way to do so. And then Blaise Pascal In the 17th century, uh, a famous Christian philosopher, maybe you're aware of him, said that uh, we're all ultimately making a wager. And I think he's right. 
We're all living our lives right now and we're, we're making a wager as if God exists or if he doesn't. And maybe to put another spin on that, we're living as if God exists or we're living as if something else is our God. And so I think what we see in this passage is that worship is, is inescapable. Um, but I think the other side of that coin is that it's not neutral. Worship isn't neutral. Um, we love gray in our uh, society. We love gray. And there's some gray in the Bible. There really is. Um, but around this question, um, specifically in verse one, like presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then what he says in the second verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed rather by the renewal of your mind. I think Paul's communicating a rather binary option here. Okay. I think what he's saying is that we're either presenting our bodies as living, holy sacrifices towards God for transformation, or we're presenting our bodies as living sacrifices conforming to the world. And um, I guess by definition, you would say living unholy and unpleasing lives. But there's no neutral in this. Paul's saying your body will be presented one of two ways, towards God or towards self-satisfaction. Um, and you see this thread all through the scriptures. You see God uh, perennially calling Israel out of the patterns of the world the nations, the people around them, don't be like them, don't act like them, be holy, be different, follow this way. Um, and then I think it's really interesting that he says, present your bodies. And here's what I mean by that. Um, in evangelicalism, uh, especially in our strand, um, I think we are taught, even at a young age, that we give our hearts to God. You give your heart to God, not your body. What in the world? When are you talking about your body? You give your, your heart. But I think Paul's challenging that a little bit. He's saying, and, and it's not that the heart isn't part of the body. That's foolish. But he's saying that um, presenting your body is your spiritual act of worship. He's going to say in Romans 6 that um, our instruments are, 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 we present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. So this isn't even the only time he's using this. And so I think that the point here is that an inward, abstract, mystical, inside of you faith that nobody sees on the outside isn't enough. Um, because ultimately Christianity is material, Christianity is of substance. Jesus didn't resurrect with an idea. He resurrects as a human being, a physical human being. So what we do with the entirety of our lives matters. Um, and I think we see that with a mouth, uh, a mouth that can either bless and bring healing to others, or it can curse and gossip and perpetuate toxicity we see that in ears that will either actively listen to the cries of distress around us or will choose to tune that out. We'll, our feet will walk in paths of righteousness or walk down uh, dangerous paths. Um, our arms will embrace the lonely, the unseen, the unloved, or embrace a life of comfort. Um, and I think what the argument here in presenting our bodies is that there is a fluidity to our worship that certainly begins in our heart but extends outward in a tangible, material way in how we live, not just for our own sake, for the sake of others. David Foster Wallace um, passed away in 
uh, the late in 2008, I believe, and he uh, dabbled in faith. I don't know if he ever landed anywhere, but uh, just a brilliant guy. He was wrote for Vanity Fair, wrote for the Rolling Stone, was a finalist for a uh, Pulitzer Prize, and uh, and uh, just a, a really, really sharp, keen mind. And two years before he died, uh, he was giving a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and he said this. Again, this isn't a pastor getting up and exhorting his congregation. This is um, a man who, who don't know what he believed getting up and, and saying this about worship not being neutral. Let me read this quote. It says this, um, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you really tap meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and bromides and epigrams and parables and the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is really what you are doing. We're all in on something. We're all worshipers. Worship is inescapable and our worship isn't neutral. And yet here's the really good news. We can worship in a way that we were actually created for. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I have uh, recently been taking some uh, 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 spin classes uh, in home. And um, as you can tell, I'm clearly training for uh, the tour to France, okay? Um, but I've been taking some spin classes. And um, what's interesting about that is there's, if you've ever taken a spin class, there's a lot of preaching and exhortation going on uh, in those spin classes. And uh, I'm like, wow, you and I kind of do the same thing, you know? And, uh, and the hardware is different, right? There, you're on a bike and I'm, I guess I have a pulpit, but... Um, but the software is kind of the same. And uh, the stuff that I've heard even in the last couple weeks is you got to get to the top of that hill. And when you find the top of that hill, you're going to find your purpose, but you're not going to know until you get there. You got to let that stuff go. 
You got to let it go. You got to breathe in the confidence and you got to breathe out the fear. And what this sounds like to me is a quest for the good life. Amen. They're preaching. And here's what's really interesting about what Paul says here in chapter, sorry, verse two, is he says that you're not conformed to this world. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think that's Paul's answer for the good life. I think if we were walking in the airport and we saw a book that said, good, acceptable, and perfect for you, probably buy it. Maybe I should write it. But um, (laughs) anyway, I got to this point with one of the instructors who I just love. And uh, she, she, this was like the crescendo. And she said, hey, listen, let's just not even think about the adjectives. I am distressed. I am powerful. I am. She just said, just make this statement. Just say this with me right now. I am. And I thought, oh. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) It's like, okay. Um, Somebody's already claimed that. Um, Old Testament and new. But here's the thing. Like, before that judgy instinct takes over, like, guys, that's what's happening in every one of our hearts. Every one of our hearts is a move and a yielding and a bending towards self-sufficiency. And um, I actually found a lot of sympathy in my heart for her, which is an act of the Spirit. We're all actively participating in worldly conformity. That's a non-negotiable. We drift towards that. Um, Jamie Smith would call these things rival liturgies that there are stealthy messages everywhere that will play to our guilt and shame. They will tell us what we lack and they will go back to the original lie that we can go around God and not to God for life and for meaning and for validation. And that is happening everywhere. And I'm not just talking about the Super Bowl commercials tonight. Those rival liturgies are happening everywhere. So what do we do? I think we key in on what Paul says at the very beginning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Romans chapter Romans is arguably the most consequential letter ever written in history. I mean, what Paul unpacks is profoundly significant. And what Paul just did with Romans chapter 1 through 11 some of the essential doctrine to our Christian faith is he encapsulated it in one word, mercy. I appeal to you, brothers, on the basis of mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God's inexcusable and un, his, his mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners, giving us his son, justifying us freely by grace and not works, giving us his life-giving spirit, including us as his family. Looking at me when I'm in eighth grade and and saying, Matthew, live. Wake up. Look at my son. Look at my son 
who I am all about. Look at Jesus, who's all about the Father. Look at the Spirit, who's all about the Father and the Son. Look at the Son talk about the way the Spirit can do things that he can't even do. Like, look at my mercy for you and live and reorient your hearts to true north. Um, And then I think about like, we could probably do mercy exercises in here and spend the rest of the day talking about the way that God's been merciful. And then I think we would miss what the psalmist says, that he is our strength and our shield. And what that means is that there are innumerable mercies in our life, ways that God has stepped in that we don't even know about. Things that he's protected us from. And for all the hard days that we've seen, there are more hard days that we didn't experience because of his mercy. You see this war-torn neighborhood that's still reeling from a tornado and we still don't know anybody who died as a result of an EF3 tornado, his mercy. And so what Paul's saying here is that you be transformed by the good life of mercy, by renewing your minds to mercy, by the renewing of your mind um, This word transformation is the same word that's used when Jesus um, uh, changes himself in the transfiguration. And he explains that. So he's described as something altogether different. And then he says, what's happening, you're actually not even going to understand until after I die. There's a call towards transformation that is in in our lives that is that pronounced. Um, So how do we renew our mind? Okay. Um, so my mom bought Caroline, my oldest daughter, a piano for Christmas, uh, which I'm two parts thrilled and one part bitter, um, (laughs) because, uh, she's right now in the, in the phase of just turning it on and it's just wah, 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 wah. And then maybe she'll turn the little synth on. So it's like, you know, but it's just, it's just horrible. And I'm like. And so I'm just going like, like I can teach you heart and souls. I really can. I, I, I know that one. But you and I all know what she's going to have to do to learn that piano. It's going to take time, discipline, focus, boring monotony, if you will, for her to figure out how to play My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, right? <laughs> Which would just be my dream. Um, but like we know, and this is a, this is a piano, like, like a lot of us went to college for four plus years to, or we went to trade school. Like what? We went to this internship. We did a post fellow. Like why? Because we gave our time and our attention and our mind and our energy, and our, and our energy to learning something in the mind. So if our mind is going to be transformed, the mind has to be formed and shaped. It has to. It has to. So we give time to the things that we care about. I think that's the first. Like renewing your mind is to, give, is to recognize that your mind has to be formed and shaped. And you have to give yourself time for your mind to be shaped and formed. And that's going to look like a constant rehearsing of the gospel. The early mornings, the late evenings, the end, like the quiet hours of prayer, the quiet hours of scripture reading, the quiet hours of you 
and the Lord, an invitation, which is like, it's an invitation into the life and the love of Jesus. To get, and, and it's just like, you are giving your, we're giving our time to something. So to renew our mind is at a baseline to give our minds that have to be formed the time they need. It's here. Like, how else do we renew our mind? It's here. It's right here. Like Josh Duncan, who's a really talented guy, doesn't lead worship to write songs to see how much you like them. He could go to Nashville and probably make more money trying to make it out there. But the reason that Josh and this team of people get up and lead us every Sunday is not to give us catchy songs. It's to throw out an air war that would reorient our hearts here against the false narratives that we're conforming to out there. And so that's why Paul says we don't forsake the gathering because the gathering is shaping and it's pointing us to our truest motivation, our true north, who is Jesus. And then in the in-between everywhere else, guys, like we have to get out of the garbage. Like there are things that we cannot control and there's even garbage that happens to us that we cannot control, but there is garbage in our lives that we can control. And we have to, by the Holy Spirit, get out of the garbage as best we possibly can. Because here's the reality. Like, do you see this flesh-spirit juxt- uh, comparison in Scripture? Paul ta- uh, uh, Shea talked about it last week. And, um, and, and you, you know that the flesh is opposed to the spirit and the spirit is opposed to the flesh. They're at war with each other. Here's what's beautiful about that, Okay. The Holy Spirit, who is God, is not the problem, okay? So like the reason the Bible says to keep up with the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is constant. Now, sometimes it is hard to hear him or see him at work, but he's not the problem. We are. And what the Bible says is that we can actually quench the Holy Spirit or we can um, completely drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit by our flesh, but the Holy Spirit is not the problem. And that's why we have to, as much as we possibly can, get out of the garbage. And I love this journey language. I love that, like he said, like it's just so obvious here that when he's saying, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Like he knows we're on a journey. Like he knows this isn't like an incubate. He knows this isn't a vacuum. That's not like, this isn't a monastery. Like Paul's saying you determine what is good and acceptable and perfect as you fight against conformity, which is an ever present thing. And like we have to have a bigger view of worship than we have. Because if we're not careful, we see worship as the crescendo of the Hillsong song that we love where we have those 10 seconds of emotional joy and that is our worship for the week. And I'm telling you guys, you have to have a broader vision of worship. Your worship is not simply your emotions. Your worship is your commitments. Your worship is your convictions. Your worship is on the hardest days of your life where you don't want to get out of bed, but you get out of bed anyway because you trust him to be good. When you open your Bible, even when you don't want to, when you repent of sin, when you text your friends and saying, I'm believing these lies and I need you to pray for me. When, you're, when, you're, like, when you hold the door open for somebody in Jesus' name, like you are not, your worship is not what you feel. Your worship is just as much your commitments 
to say that my worship of Jesus means he is the most important thing in my life and I believe him and his message to be true whether I feel it or not. And in that moment, that is just as much worship as the high point of these beautiful songs that we sing in here. Um, Predicating our worship on mercy means this about us, that we can be honest when our loves are disordered. And what we can communicate to the people around us is that we are not saved by our achievements By our good works, we are saved by mercy. And so when we feel a disorienting love, this is true north for us. God, help me to love God. Help me to love love you. Help me to love others. And what's interesting about this passage, this chapter, rather, Romans 12, is the rest of the chapter is about how God has gifted us and how we are to treat others. Because the good life of worship is not just a good life for you, it's a good life for the people around you. Because people whose hearts are yielded to Christ are the most whole people on earth. And whole people whose hearts have been motivated by worship, by the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus, they put up shade and they embody the truth and the goodness and the beauty to others. And that's the kind of worshipers by God's grace that we need to be at Northway Church. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word um, and its clarity and its integrity. And I pray that you would speak to us. Um, I pray that where our hearts are um, disordered, where our, even now, where our worship is towards rival things, Lord, where we would identify just that these things in my life have become ultimate, Lord Jesus. I thank you that you and your mercy broke through and gave us the power to see You gave us the power to repent. You gave us the power to walk away from lesser things. And so, Lord, may we love all of the things in our life well, because we know that we are ultimately loved by you and ultimately called to love you more than anything else. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.